from God's perspective and living in accordance to that vision. James is pointing his readers, run this path of wisdom. Run it with with all integrity and, and look towards what is at the end because at the end there is what he refers to as all joy and peace. At the very beginning of the book, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because in the end those trials will be for God's glory and for your good. We live in a life that is full of various kinds of trials. They don't feel good. We don't enjoy them. But at the same time, they make that finish line ever so much more something that we desire. Those who don't know Christ are destined to live for what they have. They live for the here and now. But those that know Jesus Christ as their Savior have something far, far better. What does God intend the relationship for each of us that know Christ to be with the world that we live in? This world that's biting and and scratching at us. This is a question that the the churches that James was writing to was struggling with. One that at points they had failed upon. And again this morning, one that he is going to address in James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6. So let's begin by reading that passage. James writes, Go to now. Excuse me. Or we might say, Come on. He says, Excuse me. You rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupt and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last day. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sebaoth. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. You'll remember that throughout this book, James has addressed the church regarding their relationship to the wealthy. In James 2, chapter 2, he warned them of exhibiting respect of persons. James condemns the church for giving preferred treatment to those that had a golden ring and goodly apparel. And he reminds them, he says that these rich men, in chapter 2, verse 6, these rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat. Here again, in this passage that we consider this morning, James is going to address those who are rich. Clearly, there's a conflict with the readers of this letter and their relationship to riches or to rich men. So this morning, I'd like to preach a message that I've titled, A Wrong and a Right Perspective on Riches. But before I do, let's go to the Lord and I brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, though there are times when this world weighs us down, 
when, Lord, it scratches and, and claws at us, Lord, as we try to walk the straight and narrow way that, that leads to life, Lord, we, we pray that you will continue to remind us that there is a victory in Christ Jesus. It's a victory that's already been won. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be faithful and steadfast and true unto the end. Lord, I pray that you would, even now, as we toil on, help us to remember the joy that is ours in Christ. Help us to walk wisely. Lord, open your word to us this morning. Help us to understand this very practical issue on how we are to relate to riches and to rich men. And Lord, I pray that you would use this in our lives for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd like to begin this morning asking you to consider who is the target of James' condemnation. I think it's quite clear that he's really uh, uh, giving some pretty strong words to someone. And the question is, is it you? Well, let me start here. It's not riches or those that are rich, and necessarily, that James condemns. Now, James nor I condemn anyone that has wisely saved money. The Bible commends those to to store up in summer uh, in preparation for winter. However, just as there's a difference between someone who puts on a raincoat Uh, to someone who, for instance, is going to build the Tower of Babel, so too is there a difference between someone who is financially prepared and someone living in rebellion to God. What is the intention of that savings? What is the, the attitude? What is the perspective on riches? That is really the focus of what James is going to address. Riches in excess certainly can present a temptation that is very difficult to resist. We're going to talk about that temptation in a minute, but for a moment, let me talk about what is in excess. How much is too much and how much is just enough? Now, for some of us, we might think, well, if someone owned two homes, then they're likely rich. Or for some people, it might be if they own two cars. But in some places, it's if someone owns two pairs of shoes or two changes of clothing. Is rich three, two, or one meal a day? Perhaps you don't consider yourself rich in terms of this world's goods. But let me give you just a little perspective to allow you to have your mind open to what we're going to consider. Let me have you consider the perspective on your financial position. Found these numbers very interesting. Said one report from Forbes magazine asserted that the poor in the U.S. are richer than 70% of all people living in the world. Another report stated that 50% of the world makes less than $2,138 per year. I dare say that all that are here that are working are making more than $2,138 per year. Someone at the poverty level in the U.S. is in the top 14% of the global income distribution. And in the world's eyes, my friends, each one of us are rich. 
Perhaps you find that startling. But it all depends on your perspective. If we fail to consider that we have great financial means and and great riches, then to some degree we've already been taken in. Though the target is not necessarily a person with wealth, people with wealth such as ours certainly are more susceptible to what James is addressing here this morning. So what is that thing? If it's not riches, what is it? It's those with the wrong perspective on riches. As you read through the passage, James gives us a pretty good description of the person that he's addressing. He, he describes them as rich, but it's not really riches because we perhaps all know people with financial means that don't have this perspective. And perhaps we know people with very little financial means that do hold this perspective. He's not necessarily, uh, uh, like I said, condemning people with means. He's condemning an attitude of, of people that's normally attributed to those, uh, to the, of people that have uh, significant means. So what is that attitude? The first a- aspect of it, and, and he describes it in detail here, the first aspect is self-indulgent attitude. Giving ourselves what, what, what we think we need. If you look at verse 5, he says, You have lived in pleasure on the earth. They live in luxury. Now, people have employed their wealth not for, to meet their mere needs, but really to live even beyond their needs and well beyond their needs. The attitude of those living in luxury is not merely to live, but to really make a statement to others. That they might be seen and that that they might uh, receive glory for the riches that are theirs. It's a source from which they derive pleasure and self-worth. That is uh, the part of the attitude of self-indulgence, but it's also living wantonly, it says. Now, that's not a word that we use uh, frequently in our daily language, but the, the King James says um, they live wantonly, and that could be translated as self-indulgent. Have you ever met someone that can't tell themselves no? That's the idea behind wantonly. Not only do they have everything, but they have an attitude that they deserve it. And they always deserve more. They deserve a little pampering. Selfishness really accompanies such a person. Their wants tend to outweigh the needs even of those close to them. They have to have it, and they keep feeding their own lust. This is the type of attitude that he's addressing with those that are uh, self-indulgent He also says, you have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. They live without restraint. Now, there's a couple meanings that uh, have been surmised from that phrase, you've nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. And in context, um, I, I believe there's two ways to understand it. 
first, I think, fits in with what we're addressing here, this idea of self-indulgence, where men, as they, after a victory, are, are, uh, there's great spoil from the battle and great spoil from the war, and they are accumulating to that to themselves. They eat lavishly, and it's like, a, an, um, like you might consider this as a, uh, Americans, uh, a perpetual Thanksgiving day, kind of gorging themselves. Here you get this idea of someone that lives just for themselves, for their belly, the scriptures say. Paul warns the church of Philippi of such people. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. We live in a nation that is full of such people. We, we, we come across such people on a regular basis. And though we might not live to the same extent as others, we might not have this luxurious attitude, I think it is ever, always something that we need to be very mindful of. That it not creep in in any way in our lives. But the attitude of the rich is not only one that's self-indulgent towards ourselves. Secondly, it's miserly. It's miserly towards others. Not giving others what they do need. It says here in the passage in verses 2 and 3 that their gold and their silver is corroded due to lack of use and their garments are moth-eaten. Here they have such wealth and they've piled it up to such a degree that they don't, they don't have to use it and instead it's started to corrode. How sad it is to compete for a perishable crown. Here the, 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 the irony of all of this is people are working for, for this that they don't really need but they're not going to give it to anyone else. And at the same time as they have it it's beginning to be moth-eaten and corrode and to perish in their own hands. We have the perfect picture of this in Scrooge, don't we? As he uh, would not even let his uh, office help put a chunk of coal on the fire. Let me just cite a few statistics to make this point clear. Let me remind you that God has blessed us with 100% of our income. Yeah, I read one study that reported that church members on the average give only 2.4% of their income to the church. That's like saying 93 cents for me, or 97 cents for me, 3 cents for you. 97 cents for me, 3 cents for you. But it gets even worse than that. Because of the 3 cents given to the church in 2003, Conservative evangelical denominations gave only 2.6 to foreign missions, and liberal churches only less than 1%. So again, it's the church saying, three cents for me, or 97 cents for me, three cents for them. This is something that is, is prevalent, not only, this miserly attitude is prevalent, not only in the them and the outside and the people that don't know Christ, but it has tended 
according to these studies, to seep not only into church people, but into churches as well. Now, I'm not espousing a Robin Hood philosophy or saying communism or a welfare state is the right approach, but really, 97 cents and 3 cents? Is that the right balance? Third, the the third way this attitude expresses itself is with an idolatrous attitude. Look what he says here. He says, you have heaped treasures together for the last day. As As a Christian, it should seem illogical to us to think that money could be of any value in the last day. And yet, let me assure you that men trust their wealth. Wealth provokes an attitude that entices men to trust it. After all, that's all that they have. People would desire to, if you will, approach heaven's gate and say, Here, Peter, here's my bag of gold. Let me remind you that entrance into the kingdom was purchased at a far greater price than that. And how much, uh, how, 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 blasphemous it is for anyone to think that any work of righteousness that they have done could merit one single uh, grace of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 49, verse 6, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceases forever. The Lord himself said in Matthew 16, verse 26, What is it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is there is not a thing that a man can give to buy or to redeem his own soul. The scriptures give us an example of a rich man. And he lived very high in life. And there was a poor man that lived outside of his window whose name was Lazarus. And the Bible tells us that they both died. Lazarus to the bosom of Abraham. And his cries from his poverty were heard by the Lord. But of the rich man, it says that he is sentenced to the lake of fire. And there, in poverty and in, 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 in having nothing, he asked but for a drop of water. His wealth could not even procure that for him. He failed in all things. Men will trust in something that is vain. They'll trust in their money. And such is the, the, the attitude that James is condemning. And then, lastly, it's an unjust attitude. An unjust attitude. Look at verse 4. It says, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. These people are unrighteous. They don't fulfill their obligations. These are the people that James is condemning. Though they've had workers and the workers have done their job and they've done it well, still the people will not pay them what's, pay them their due. It's wrong for owners and managers not to pay a man a fair wage for a fair day's work. 
It's also wrong for workers to think that they have a right to a job, that a company owes them for their mere presence, and that they need not put in that full day's work. Both are condemned in the scriptures. Both are unrighteous. Here, James condemns those that defraud and uh, hold back unrighteously from their, from their workers. But he also notes them as unjust. In verse 6, notice what he says. He says, you have condemned and killed the just. They have an attitude where men are mere possessions. Their lives are things in their hands and not in the hands of God. The unjust attitude, the spirit of entitlement, culminates in the willingness to even take their life. I think what we have here we see in the story of Ahab in the Old Testament who desired a vineyard and Jezebel uh, go and it's written in 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 7 it says when Naboth refused to sell them his vineyard that's to, to Ahab he had him dispatched he had him killed as if he were a bug something merely standing in his way That was the attitude of Ahab. That is the attitude that James is condemning in this passage. Right and wrong are whatever brings such a person pleasure, even at the point of defacing the man who was made in the image of God. So with all of this, I've tried to paint a picture of someone that is self-indulgent, someone that's miserly, someone that's adulterous, someone that's unjust. These are the people that James is addressing here in the first, cha- in the first six verses of chapter 5. Well, he goes on, and he's going to explain where that perspective leads. Secondly, where that perspective leads... The impact of these attitudes and actions pass by those that possess them, often with little consideration. Scrooge gave very little consideration to his worker. And rich people often give very little consideration to the people that they've had to step on to get to their position. Man becomes so self-focused that others fade away. Perhaps their impacts are seen but quickly justified. Well, it was, a necess- it was a necessary evil. You know, I just I had to do it because it got me where I needed to go. And after all, that's what's most important. The heart of man is certainly deceitful and desperately wicked. But the scripture here tells us that the Lord of hosts hears the cry of the oppressed. Notice the name by which James identifies God who hears there in the passage. It's the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, that term is is, uh, used twice in the New Testament, both here and in Romans chapter 9, verse 29. And in Romans 9, verse 29, the Apostle Paul is using it by quoting from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. The term is much more widely used in the Old Testament, and it refers and is translated in the Old Testament as the Lord of hosts. Literally, it's a term that refers to the Lord of the armies of Israel, the Lord of the armies of God's chosen people. The title designates Yahweh as the leader of the oppressed. The battle is his, 
essentially the cry uh, of, of, the, of the foot soldier has come to the commander-in-chief. The attack upon uh, the army is not going without the commander's notice, is the idea. There is going to be a penalty paid. And you see it in this passage. Look at verse 1. He opens this way. He says, Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. God's, God's chosen people, those that are serving his, his children will not be oppressed without his notice. In the end, here, the rich men will experience misery or distress. A distress that will produce weeping and howling. Now, the Bible speaks about the end of those that are lost. And it speaks that they, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something that very much is akin to what James is reminding his readers of the rich man's end. Hell is described as just that place. A place of great sorrow and great anguish. That he descri- that is, is the end that he is here um, implicitly, or that he's implying to, to these rich people with such an attitude. Look at verse 3. He goes on even further. He says, Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be as witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. The song we sang this morning, Satisfied. He says, All the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. It's that same idea here as someone is suffering for, for, their, uh, for their faithlessness and for the sinful attitudes having turned from God and having oppressed his people, here their riches will mock them. It will be, as it were, uh, uh, burning their flesh. The memories of those attitudes and those selfish actions will be that which condemned the bearer for all eternity. So we see James first identifying some people, people with a particular attitude. Secondly, we see that where that perspective leads. But third, let me ask you this. Who's James' message really targeted at? Is it you? The question that we're left with reading in these six verses is, why did James write these six verses? Remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to people that James refers to as brothers and, and beloved brothers those that have placed faith in Jesus Christ. Why here does he open up chapter 5 with just this really harsh condemnation of rich men with this really self-indulgent, miserly, uh, idolatrous attitude? Well, I think the answer to that question of who is James writing to is kind of twofold. The warning first is to the attitude of the rich. Certainly, there would be rich people that would read this, and James would, uh, his message would be to them uh, one that would be a harsh rebuke. They were in a place to face special temptation, and they would be, should be watchful of the shadows of the attitudes that we see here. Are there times when each one of us can be self-indulgent? Are there times when we can have be miserly and 
tend in those directions? I think the answer is yes. And I think we need to learn from uh, and be, be, uh, listen to the, the rebuke that's here. But I think James intended these first six verses to be more than just a target at the rich. This is an, uh, also an encouragement to those that are oppressed. After all, that is who James is writing to. Remember at the beginning, he says, count it out joy when you fall in diverse temptations. He's writing to a, a, a church that rich men were, were coming into their midst and they were the same people that were oppressing them. It tells us that in James chapter 2. There is certainly a struggle between how the church related to these rich people and how they got along together. Well, as I wrestled with this question, the Lord led me to Psalm 73, which I think perfectly explains the perspective that James is trying to convey. If you'll turn over to James 73, we're going to close there, and I'm going to read several of the verses. Psalm 73, sorry, not James 73. You'll have a hard time finding that one. Psalm 73. The psalmist here is writing... And he, too, is confronting those that are rich. Notice his perspective, starting at verse 1. He says, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there were no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compassed them about as a chain. Violence covered them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They say, "How doth God know? And is their knowledge in the most and is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches." Here the psalmist says, I I looked at these people as I was trying to live for the Lord and I see how how they are uh, acting foolishly and prospering. He says, I was envious of them. Sounds exactly to me as the people James is addressing. The psalmist in verse 16 concludes, it was too painful for me. Perhaps you've experienced some of that oppression. You see rich people behaving with all the attitudes that James describes and as the psalmist here describes, and you just say, that that just is not fair. How come my life is so hard and theirs is so easy? Perhaps when you've experienced oppression and injustice or even the idolatrous shows, you felt that same pain. James, it seems to me, certainly was informed by Psalm 73, if not, if it wasn't really on the t- tip of his mind as he wrote chapter six or chapter, uh, chapter 5. Look at verse 16. He goes on and he says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How art they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou 
awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before them. Here the psalmist says, now it makes sense. As I look at this whole situation with the eyes of wisdom, as I see this from God's perspective, the, the, the rich are not someone to be, to be envied. They're not someone to, something to covet. They are something that is foolish and something that is a grief and some people to be pitied. Don't permit the position, possession and position and the oppression of the rich to cause you to veer from the path of wisdom. It's not something that is going to bring you to the end that God is calling you to. It's not where joy is going to come from. Don't adopt their attitudes and actions, or you'll adopt their ends. Riches, rich men place, riches place men in a slippery place where their destruction is far too easy. Contrary to the destruction the psalmist seems for the oppressor. Look what he writes in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward revive me, receive me to glory. When have I, whom am I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish, but hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I might declare all thy works. That, my friends, is the path of wisdom. That is someone seeing life, seeing riches from God's perspective, seeing his own oppression from God's perspective, seeing that it is but for a brief season, but in the end there is a period of great joy and glory. Seeing that men with riches are in a slippery place, but seeing that they are being held by their right hand by God himself. James is pointing to the path of wisdom. It was so easy when I was in a senior in high school to say, my, my goal is to be rich. How foolish. How, how, how ill-informed I was then, and in, in, in many areas still am, but, but at the same time, to see riches in a much different perspective. James calls those that would walk the path of wisdom to draw near to God. Begins by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and God is not your Savior, He's not your Lord, He's not holding you by His right hand, He offers it to you today. If you will believe that you are a sinner, and that God died for your, Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again, he offers you to save you freely by his grace. If you're here today and you see some shadows of those attitudes reflected in your own life, let me call for you to repent. As the psalmist said, it's good for you to draw near to God and to put your trust in him, to follow hard after him, 
And even as the brambles of life and as the uh, oppression of life and of the rich and of the values of this world tear at you to keep your eyes fixed on the joy that is set before you. For Christ said, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Such is the race that we run as well. Let me call for you to have a right perspective on riches, to have a right attitude towards them, and to have a right perspective towards your God who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, we know that you are a sovereign God in control of all things. Lord, you bless men with great wealth. And some, Lord, you, desi- you give very little. Lord, I pray that whether we abase or we, whether we abound, Lord, that we might glory in all things. Lord, that we might not have an attitude of self-indulgence and miserliness and idolatry. Lord, that we might not be unjust and murderers as the attitudes of the rich that James addressed. But, Lord, that we might run with joy the race that is set before us. Lord, I pray that you'll work in the hearts and lives of each that are here. Lord, that if there is one that does not know Christ, that today might be the day of their salvation. They would believe uh, in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, that they too would be saved. And Lord, I pray that you will cleanse each one of us. Help us to look at our own hearts and our own attitudes. To confess our sins and our failures before you. And Lord, to press hard on that upward way. I pray, Lord, your blessing in Christ's name. Amen.